Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Wrapping up the day's sporting issues deep into the night. This is Extra Time on SENZ. I'm gonna It is coming up to, it is one minute after eight. Telephone number here on SENZ is 0800 150 uh, Let's take some talk back, eh? I, I, I've got to say, I, I've just had an absolute guts full with New Zealand rugby. I am just fed up. I listened to the interview that Mark Robertson gave this station, I think it was on Friday. I've never heard so much garbage in all of my life so much spin, so much delusion coming from the man who runs our game, trying to tell us that fan engagement is high, jumping up and down the fact that two games in 12 rounds have been sellouts. In fact, the Chiefs-Crusaders game wasn't quite a sellout. In the Crusaders game, which was a sellout, we're talking a stadium of 17,000 people. trying to tell us that rest and rotation is on the advice of sports scientists who have done research to suggest they can only really play a maximum of five games in a row. Well, just think how much better the NRL would be if they took that advice. They seem to be able to play 25 games in a row. So what we're doing is just we're going to tar everybody with the same physiological brush. Everybody's made the same, therefore everybody is only good for a maximum of five games in a row. What an absolute crock. There is no merit in it whatsoever. We've got to win three tests in 15 days if we're to win the Rugby World Cup. Quarterfinal, semi-final and final. But you also have to make sure that you've got your team that's going to play the quarterfinal, semi-final and final playing probably two games prior or two consecutive games prior to make sure that you've got your combinations right. Well, How are our players expected to do that if they're told they can't do that? 800 150811, jump on the phone, have a chat. We had Justin Marshall on the program yesterday telling me, and I see media have picked up on it, 
that halfway through the Crusaders game, he just changed the channel and started to look to see what the rugby league was on offer. He is not the only one. People are doing it in droves. We've got four coaching positions potentially up for grabs in Super Rugby. The Blues, the Crusaders, the Hurricanes and now Moana Pacifica. And no one wants the damn jobs. They don't want them. But we're told it's the greatest rugby provincial rugby competition in the world. There was a time where wanting to coach the Blues and coaching the Crusaders was the equivalent of coaching Manchester United and Liverpool in football. The game is dying. The game is dead. There's no coming back. And then there are the Crusaders. And I don't blame the Crusaders. I sort of get it. They now want Levi Amua, the one player Moana Pacifica could potentially build a team around. One of four or five players who has been a shining light this year, who has played at the highest level and played with the highest quality. Moana Pacifica can't keep their stars. What is the point of having Moana Pacifica in the competition if they are not going to be supported? There is none. None whatsoever. Where is New Zealand rugby? Where is Sansa stopping this from happening? And should the Crusaders be allowed to pillage Moana Pacifica? Should any of the other franchises be allowed to pillage Moana Pacifica? I can understand why Levi Amour and Pacific, Pacifica players want to go, want to play for bigger, better teams. It's in their best interests. Now, better players around them, they learn from those players. It's probably a better stage to audition on for higher honours and also to increase your market value overseas. 0800 150 811 is the number. Should the Crusaders be allowed to sign Levi Amor? Do the Crusaders need Levi Armour? When you think about it, Braden Enor, Jack Goodyear, David Harvili. You also go through and have a look at Dallas McLeod. Shea Fihaki can play at centre. Lester Whanganuku can play there if need be. We've got the Highlanders struggling for any depth in their squad. Yet we're going to have a Crusaders team who are already brilliant, stacked with stars, and a number of them sitting on the bench week to week. It is not a good thing. It is not good for this competition. 0800-150-811. I seem to go on about this every damn night I'm on. But every week I get more and more frustrated with the bastardisation of rugby in this country. All in the name of the damn All Blacks. 
Only people that are benefiting are the players. And the way it's going, that will run out too. The only reason the game is professional is because of a high level of engagement from the New Zealand public who considered themselves to be rugby fans. But they treat us, the fan, with disdain and with contempt. And they just don't get it. Can someone please reinforce what Mark Robertson said, that the game is healthy, that there is a high level of engagement? Does anyone genuinely believe that? Jump on the phone and convince me that rugby is still appointment viewing, that is still the default setting at night, except people now watch rugby at home on 80-inch TV screens rather than going to the game. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. And does anyone believe that rugby has a bigger viewing audience? I'm not talking about the All Blacks, has a or rugby World Cup, but at a domestic level, a bigger audience or a higher level of engagement than the NRL. The NRL is massive. It is killing rugby, and more rugby people are jumping across to it. More rugby people are jumping across to basketball. And yet Mark Robertson comes on this station and talks like there is nothing wrong. Nothing wrong at all. I am going to put a request in for the man. I want him in studio and I will challenge him on his answers. Because the man is delusional. Absolutely and utterly delusional. So is the board. So is everybody that works in the Kremlin. And that's what New Zealand rugby is. It's the damn Kremlin. There's about as much propaganda comes out of that as what Putin puts out around Ukraine. There's a high level of suspicion. I come in here to Ben, I go, I'm going to go on rugby. Ben says to me, be careful of your coffee, mate. Make sure that I haven't put poison in it. Or radiation somewhere. Don't go up onto a third level hotel in case somebody accidentally pushes you out the window. Because how dare you go up against the Kremlin? Our national game. It's a disgrace. It's boring. It's Mickey Mouse. Every week. And it's just one-sided... Marquee players who are put up on billboards. It's false advertising because they never appear. Virtue signalling with Moana Pacifica and the Fiji and Drua. Is the competition any better with the minute? No, it's not. I think the intent was the right one, but no, it's not. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one is the number. Aaron Major falling on his sword. Another review.
Idi Kalassi doing a review, not a particularly good one. Well, when you're losing every week, it's never going to be a good one, is it? But do you blame the coach? Well, professional sports, that's just the harsh reality of it. But what hope, seriously, have Moana Pacifica got if they can't even keep Levi Armour? What hope have the Highlanders got if Levi Armour just goes to the Crusaders? What happens if we get knocked out in the quarterfinals of the Rugby World Cup? Where are we at? Oh, we got the women's game to save us. No, we haven't. That's virtue signalling BS too. They don't sell tickets. It's never going to pay itself back. It's not. Just the harsh reality of it. Let it organically grow. But if rugby and if, if the interest in the men's game is not there, I can tell you that it flows down. The interest in the women's game won't be there either. You can manufacture it in this political environment all you want. The reality is the $21 million a year New Zealand rugby is putting into women's rugby, you're never going to see a return on that investment unless you measure things intangibly. But we know that's not the case with New Zealand rugby. They will tell you, oh, yeah, but it's not just about the money. No, it's all about the money for you clowns. Let's not play South Africa. Let's not have the South African teams in Super Rugby. Let's take the All Blacks to Japan and let's just bank a whole lot of money even though we'd probably know the outcome is a foregone conclusion. Let's just franchise the All Blacks. Hell, why not? Hansen started it when he took a team to Japan. Then he picked 52 players. How come it's almost impossible to get a job in New Zealand rugby because you're not qualified enough or you don't have experience? And the, those running at the those running at the game at the highest level, if they were back at school in the nineteen twenties and thirties, they'd be seated in the corner with one of those witches' hats that says "dunce" on it. Look at it through the eyes of marketing. So, what is the brand that we're selling? What is the All Black brand? The All Black brand is no compromise. It's precision, performance, and no compromise. It's about winning. That's what separates the All Blacks from every other team in the world and our winning record. And what have we done in recent times? Well, we've said it's okay to lose because we want to win the Rugby World Cup. And then we've started to say, okay, well, let's now go and play games in Japan. So we dumb ourselves down in regards to the opposition that we're playing. So what do you think happens when you start doing that? Well, of course, you start eroding that brand the very thing that you're reliant on that has brought you a high level of commercial acumen, you're now starting to bastardise. Duh. 15 minutes after 8. 0800 150 811. Michael says, if you have a problem, give it up. We have all given it up, though, Michael. We have, mate. That's the problem. You know, just go and ask everybody anywhere. Go and do your internal survey. Sit down with people. You'll get the same story every time. Oh, I just don't care about it anymore. I've given up my sky. Can't be bothered with it. I watch the All Blacks, but I don't really care. 
You know, back in 1999 when the Crusaders won Super Rugby, James Kerr scores the try at Eden Park. That was appointment viewing. They had 100,000 people turn up for a ticket tape parade in Christchurch. How many people do you think turned up last year when the Crusaders won it? None. Didn't even have one because there's no demand anymore for it. Two sellouts in 12 rounds of Super Rugby and we've got Mark Roberts and the CEO jumping up and down believing that somehow there is still a high level of engagement in our domestic game. And when are the sycophantic media actually going to challenge him and ask him the follow-up questions and challenge him on his answers and present statistics to show the flaws in his answers? Boy, they get a free ride in this country, don't they? 16 and a half minutes after 8. 0800 150811. Text us here on 8833. OK, I'm sorry if I'm a broken record, but I'm just trying to make a point. I just seem to constantly go on this damn topic every night about the death of our national game. Now, my dad died when he was 54 years of age back in 1992. The man loved his rugby. You went along to games and they were sellouts or close to it. There was tribalism. There was provincial bias. There was journalists doing their job, asking the hard questions. And what is it now? It's just spin and public relations and an organisation so top-heavy that they can no longer see the wood through the trees. We had a sellout in Christchurch for the Crusaders Blues, 17,000. Wow. We had close to a sellout for the Crusaders Chiefs. Not quite. They're the only games that have deemed to be sellouts in 12 rounds of Super Rugby. And New Zealand Rugby doesn't think there's anything wrong. Unbelievable. Justin Marshall coming on the programme, and well done to Justin for just being honest. He said, I switched off halfway through the Crusaders game because the outcome was inevitable. He started looking for rugby games of rugby league to watch where the outcome is not inevitable. John has texted in, what I don't get about the All Blacks rest is after the Super Rugby has finished, they have only five games in the next three months. So having rest seven months out of the World Cup is BS. I agree. This is it. This is it. Some physiologists. It's not physiologists telling the All Blacks that these guys are going to get tired. It's the damn All Black coaches looking after themselves. So a lot of our rugby talent is only going to be two teams in the final. So there's All Blacks within two teams, possibly only one New Zealand team. Who knows? Then we've got a very, very limited international window. I mean, I found off the back of huge training days, two days was enough to recover. Certainly two weeks is a lifetime.
I still want Mark Robertson to show me the evidence that there is merit in rest and rotation. Because all I've seen in the last four years is an awful all-black team losing a lot of games. All-black coaches who pulled players out of Super Rugby for all-black camps. If you're available, you play in the NRL. You play 24 regular season games. The other thing is when they do play, they're still only playing 60 minutes. They all want more money and all want to do less for it. And the Players Association's guilty in all of this. I mean, the tail wags the dog. You know, it's ridiculous some of the contracts they've put in place where players can only train at certain times of the day and because players have to go and get an education. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. Does anybody care? Does anybody actually care? I heard David Moffat, former CEO of New Zealand Rugby, uh, do an interview with Mark Stafford in the afternoons here on SENZ. And he was right. He said, you know, when we lost Rugby World Cups in the past, there was a national outcry. A nation mourned. You know, coaches were going to be hung, drawn and courted. But he said in 2019... For the first time, there was a much higher level of acceptance. And that level of acceptance is a thing called apathy. And isn't it strange how now apathy is starting to creep into our expectations on the All Blacks? Because we've been told it's okay to lose. We've been convinced that now rugby is different, that it's a truly global game. And the Northern Hemisphere is caught up and you just can't expect to win the way we once did. What an absolute load of utter nonsense. We just saw the French, what, go on a 12, 13, 14 game run before it came to an end. All this is, is all black coaches, high performance staff and management trying to save their reputations, trying to save their jobs by presenting rhetoric and a narrative to justify their losses or their inadequacies. Oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one. If you've just joined the program too, what are the Crusaders? Why do they need to go and buy Levi Armour? Leave Moana Pacifica alone. If if Levi Armour goes to the Crusaders, shut down Moana Pacifica. Because there's no hope for them. The moment they bring through any good talent, some other super rugby franchise just picks that player up. They're just there making up the numbers at the moment, aren't they? And it's really, really sad. Moana Pacifica's place is at MPC level. That's where they should be positioned. That's where they should have a point of view. Super Rugby is too big a step up. Now, what is Sansa, what is New Zealand Rugby doing to try and protect it? Doing nothing. 
It's just virtue signalling. Doug's texting, G'day Mark, what if France win the first game at the World Cup? They will lose the final to the All Blacks. Possible? Hey look, I'm not saying the All Blacks can't win the Rugby World Cup, but I think we can win the Rugby World Cup and still have a world-class provincial competition without having to bastardise it. We can have both. Look how successful the French have been. You look at the top 14. Those players play every week. Look at Ireland. Those players play every week. When England won the World Cup, I don't remember rest and rotation. South Africa won in 2019. I don't remember rest and rotation. Look at how the domestic game in South Africa is thriving. Now they've got out of super rugby. Enjoying the benefits of the Northern Hemisphere. Good crowds, high level of engagement. Twenty nine minutes after eight oh eight hundred one five oh eight double one is the number. A text that's come in says, I kind of agree to you with you, Otto, to some extent. But I was seething when we lost to England in the last World Cup semi. So was I. Problem is now the woke start calling you a hater when you put harsh fact opinion across social media. And players and coaches just say they are proud. You're paid to win the game. You are. That is what professional sport about is about. It is about the currency is winning and losing. It's not about the journey, the spiritual component of it, and all that other nonsense that is often put out there as part of some narrative when a team loses. There is only one acceptable outcome for any all-black team when they take the field, and that is winning, and winning well. You have one job as an all-black. Justin Marshall said this to me last Sunday. Your job is to leave the jersey that you are wearing in a better place when your time is up in that jersey. Can you say that of this current crop of players? I don't think you can. Because they have been brainwashed when they do lose, not to worry because it's some part of some bigger plan. It's all about winning the Rugby World Cup. 0800 150811 if you do want to phone the programme. Text us here on 8833. Uh, ben, good evening, Welcome. Good evening, Watto. <laughs> Do you, uh, I just want to weigh in on the on the whole rugby thing. I've just almost given up on the damn thing, mate. You no, know, I'm just going to go on a different tack from now on. No one seems to care. New Zealand rugby don't care. Uh, I care, but few others do, so why do we continue talking about it? Why why does the media, and we're guilty of it here, why do we spend so much time talking bloody rugby when clearly no one's interested in it? It's not a good business model, mate. You know, if you're you're a company and you're putting a product out there and then suddenly there's no demand for the product but you keep putting it out there, what generally happens to the business? Oh, it crumbles, it fails. all the media still seem to be in this habit of wanting to shove rugby down everybody's throat. Oh, it's because it's the national game. But we're um, starting to see, in saying that, I'm starting to see more media pick up on things like um, MMA, 
and there is more coverage going to rugby league now. And it was always the poor cousin, wasn't it? It was. And one thing I wanted to to point out was on the radio today, they were advertising tickets for the All Blacks game. I don't know who they're playing. They're playing at Mount Smart Stadium. Playing South Africa. They're playing South Africa at Mount Smart Stadium. But tickets start at $80 for adults. And I'm and I and I I was driving the car and I almost had to you know put slam your foot on the brakes. I'm thinking eighty dollars. I would much rather spend eighty dollars on going to two Warriors games at Mount Smart Stadium. <laughs> and I think that's a half half your half your battle there. Yeah, yeah. I know people will pay it, but I'm thinking, but, but God will, no. But, but will they pay? It? There was a time when you go South Africa here. I mean, what the hell are we playing? I know that's the FIFA Women's World Cup, but playing South Africa at Mount Smart. I mean, seriously. Dreadful. It's a dreadful. South Africa, the All Blacks, you're playing at Mount Smart. It should have been sold out by now, even at 80 bucks, even at 100 bucks, 150 bucks. It should be the biggest ticket in world rugby. I still wouldn't pay that, though. I don't think. Well, you might not pay it now. I agree. I wouldn't pay for anything under Ian Foster. I I just not prepared to support this damn New Zealand rugby. Okay, what are the only? Okay, put it this way: the only way you who's going to turn up? Who's going to play? Western rotate. (laughs) The only way you will literally get me to a game of rugby union is if you give me a ticket. I will not pay for a ticket to go to a rugby union match, and I. Yep, I went to one rugby game last year, and the lovely Steve Devine got me some tickets, and it was brilliant because I didn't have to pay a cent. Fantastic seats, but I would, yeah, as I said, I would not pay to go to a rugby game, and that's just that's just the way I find it. I think everything you touched on in terms of it's it's like you know it's called like the water cooler talk, or you see what's on social media, what sports people talking about, and maybe it's because of the things that I like. I do like some rugby pages, but the majority of the rugby I follow is in Europe. But I always see lots of discussions around. Uh, the NRL, as you say, most of the discussions I see around rugby, uh, it's just comical stuff, really, to be, to be honest. Um, I, there was lots of interest in uh, the European tournaments over the weekend, which were, which was great. But no, that's not the rugby down here. We're seeing about the formal. I mean, but- you look at the state of our grounds. You know, It's the best super rugby competition. They play a game in Taranaki, and they've got the cameras on the stadium side looking across to basically – Holes that are going to be used to build the concrete pillars of the new stand. The floodlights look bloody awful. You go down there in Canterbury and it's still just a dreadful ground. Capacity of 17,000. You're basically sitting in, um, yeah, some man made stand of scaffolding. But going back to the game of Taranaki, to me, that was a complete insult. Not the fact because it was played there, it was a complete insult because Taranaki had not had a Super Rugby game in six years. And essentially, the people had to pay probably a premium price as well to go watch a second string Chiefs team which is an absolute joke if you're if you don't get to go to a Super Rugby game in six years you want to see the best players out there you, you know when uh, the Warriors played and I think it was the Cowboys in town 24,000 and our yeah. three best Super Rugby sides were all having a buy yeah. that buy by the way is separate to the rest and rotation policy the All Blacks put in place and then you look at this weekend's game and you're thinking, well, it is weird. I don't have anything. Oh, what am I going to look forward to? Oh, the Chiefs Hurricanes. Oh, I think the Hurricanes might have a chance. No, they're not. We're resting Savia. We're resting Geordie Barrett. And you just sit there and go, why do I bother? Why do they bother? Oh, I genuinely, oh, God, I'd laugh one day if these clowns running the game found themselves lying there requiring open heart surgery or some life 
you know, needed some surgery to save their damn life. So highly skilled needed. The best surgeon in the world comes in and then you finally find out, no, sorry, he's having a day off. He's tired. But we're going to give you, we're just going to rest and rotate and bring some other guy in to give him some experience. Good luck with it. Hopefully, hopefully, you know, he doesn't fail on the brain surgery or the heart surgery or whatever that you're going through. It's unbelievable. That's how damn angry I get with it. I wish bad things are probably upon good people. But if you're going to continue to dumb things and kill my game, then I start to, you know, I start to become a little bit psychotic. I know, I know it's very hard comparing sports here, but I, I look, you look at football, for example, right? And just Premier League and Champions League games alone this season, Kevin De Bruyne has already played 40 games. That it's not including well, this season. That's not including the FA Cup. That's not commu- including Community Shield, not including internationals, not including the World Cup. And he's, he's out on the field for 90 minutes in most of those games. Yeah. Wow, you look at the basketball guys. If, if you were to play every game in an 82-game season and then go the best of seven in every game, so you're going to be playing over 100 games well, in a season. But, but you go and look and they'll go, oh, yeah, but it doesn't have the physical contact. Yeah, but yes, but you, you grow up, You it's a natural... You you learn to take the tackles. But you, you learn to deal with the gladiatorial side of it. It's stop, start. You're not even playing the full 80 minutes. You've got six days off between games. I've got friends who are, you know, some of the best Ironman athletes in the world, swimming every morning for an hour and a half to two hours, going out and riding four or five hours, no matter what the weather's doing, running 120 kilometres a week with workouts, pounding on the body, going home, having to deal with kids, don't get paid if they don't get perform. And there is Mark Robertson's sitting down and trying to tell me about physiology and the need for our damn All Blacks to rest because they can't handle it week in, week out. How the hell are they going to win a World Cup if they can't play damn five Super Rugby games in a row? I think some of those other sports as well, I'm more referencing basketball, is a lot more physical than people realise. You will probably see with your kids. Football is brutal, man. It is. It's It's a a lot lot more brutal than what you see on the TV. But also, too, the consequences of a bad game are far more substantial than if you have a bad game in rugby. I mean, you are in front of people. You're there. You can't hide behind a lot of people in football. You make a bad pass, it's got serious consequences. God, I am sick and tired of rugby being built up like it's the hardest damn sport in the world and we don't get it. And look at us. You know, oh, trying to just somehow elevate our sense of importance or its importance. Rubbish. Try running 100 miles a week. Not one of you would get to 50 miles before breaking down. <laughs> they wouldn't, mate. I wouldn't even get one, mate, they to wouldn't. be honest. <laughs> Try swimming 100 kilometres a week in a damn pool. No, it sounds like and a nightmare. And doing it because you just want to wear the black singlet. Yep. Oh, but it's tired. But it's quite interesting as well, kind of seeing the state of rugby in other countries. You see, like in uh, England at the moment, like wasps have gone into administration and pretty much been demoted. And that's a a historic English club. And you look at, I know Saracens had the salary cap issues, but you know there there are some big clubs in the world of rugby struggling as well. And if and if you got clubs like that struggling, surely that is a sign of of the state of the game. And it's not just here. There are also problems in other countries. Well, why is basketball and football so popular? Real simple. Really basic rules. Cheap entry point, And everybody can play it. I don't know if you saw there was, uh, there was a story on the news. I think it was on News Hub the other night. And they were talking about how in club rugby they've tried trialling the new tackle laws out. And the referees and coaches were going, yeah, you know, good for the game. But they've said there's been so much confusion around the rules in terms of 
uh, I think it's I think it's the first guy comes in, he has a lower point, but the second guy comes in, he's allowed to go slightly higher. Yeah. And it's it's just stupid, stupid crap like that, which uh, which can easily confuse for anyone watching because they they change the rules so often, the tackle yeah, height yeah, and all that. How how on earth are you meant to keep up? You know, Ben. The other thing is like we did that show yesterday with Justin, right? The rugby run, and Justin came out and he was really really honest about the fact that he switched off. Now, stuff have picked up on it, and it's got some media traction now that Justin Marshall turns off. You know, my first thought, I hope Justin doesn't get into trouble with Sky Television for saying that. And that's my first thought for Justin. I'm just thinking, that's what it's got to now, where you can't even talk about it because you fear that there might be some consequences because you're not buying into New Zealand rugby's narrative and while at the same time you're working for their media partner. And the media have to realise, actually, you should encourage comments like that from Justin Marshall because all you want is to be talked about. There's only one thing that's worse than being talked about, and that's not being talked about when it comes to sport, when it comes to business, when it comes to a product or when it comes to being in the media. Uh, right, it is 15 minutes away from nine. I'm going to tell you a really, um, I've been, been a bit naughty on social media. I have a bit of fun with our Northern Hemisphere counterparts at times, fans up there. I love winding them up. I just get bored sometimes, so I put little things up on Facebook and I'll tell you a little story after this. And um, It's amazing how people bite back. Ten and a half minutes away from nine. So Ben, 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 I was on um, scouring, you know, through a bit of Facebook and stuff and Alan Wynne-Jones, the great Welsh player. Is he great? I'm not sure anyway. I, he's retired from international rugby, played 150-odd tests for Wales and a number of tests for the British and Irish Lions. In fact, might have gone on three British and Irish Lions tours. And I love the way the Northern Hemisphere love to talk their guys up. So I, I, I love to just come in with a couple of little cutting comments. So I made the comment. I said, yeah, but he's played 150-odd tests because Wales have got no depth. I mean, if he was playing for New Zealand, if he was playing in New Zealand, he'd be lucky to have been an All Black. And if he had, he probably would have only played 50 because there's about six guys knocking on the door. And, of course, that sends the Welsh and the Northern Hemisphere seething. So they start, you know, texting me back and writing little messages back. And I'm just sort of sitting there just continuing to wind them up. And I go, yeah, but you look at Ali Williams, and I was going through all of our great locks. I said, oh, you know, Gareth. I said, Gareth Edwards might make an All Blacks greatest 15, probably the only Welsh player that would. And this one person's coming at me. I said, oh, let me guess. You probably think Johnny Wilkinson is a better first five than Dan Carter and that Brian O'Driscoll's the greatest centre of all time, you know? And, and I'm thinking to myself, why am I doing this? And you know why I'm doing it? I just want to waste people's time, Ben. I just want to waste people's time. I just want to wind them up. I want to live rent-free inside the head. I just love to put it into the Northern Hemisphere. It's so easy. But it also just shows. It also just shows. It's a terrible social experiment. It just... The power of social media and just how destructive it can be too and just how absurd the whole thing is. I finally just went back to this person and said, look, I'm just winding you up. You don't need me to authenticate whether you think Alan Wynne-Jones is a great rugby player or not. Do you know, actually, it's quite interesting. So today the for the J- Japan Top League Rugby, they named their team of the, the, the competition for the season. Just called. No New Zealanders in it. No New Zealanders in the top 15 for the best rugby players in Japan this season. Really? Really. 
which I, I, I found quite interesting. There were quite a few South Africans and a, you know, a couple of Aussies in there as well. But no, I'd, love no. to, I'd love to get a list of those who are actually playing in Japan. You sort of lose count, but it almost seems to be now the default setting for our players, isn't it? It's not the Northern Hemisphere anymore. It's either France or it's Japan. It's not so much England. Yeah. And, and Charles Piertel going there next year. Yeah. Um, but I think I think Alan Wynne-Jones would have to be considered. I, I, I know I understand the whole depth of the position, but I think if you end up being like the most capped player for your country and being played on so many lines towards, I think you, you have to be in the mix for some. I'm not saying he is the best. No, I know. You, you, you can put him in there and say, without doubt, he's a Welsh great. Um would you would you put him in a team ahead of Brody Retallick or Sam Whitelock? Uh, probably not. Well, I, I guess that's the judgment from down here. It's because, like, I guess my the way I see it is how how many tests did you see Alan Wynne Jones play? Yeah, equally too, and equally too, he's probably got a whole lot of players around him who might not actually be that good. And as Justin has said, if you've got good players around you, you're going to lift naturally. My my point is that like he's clearly a very very good player. I, I just like wasting people's time and just poking the bear and just irritating them when on board, Ben. It's uh, just the sinister side of me. I had a mate, seriously, <laughs> very, very wealthy guy, and he had a few articles written about him or he appeared in the odd article, and there was nothing malicious about it, but he just got lawyers involved because he just wanted to waste important people's important time. He said, I'm just doing it to waste their time, Mark. I just want them to have a couple of sleepless nights. I don't mind paying for it. I'm just, I, just want, I just want to waste important people's time. And I just sat there and thought, you are a bad man. You are a bad, bad man. I, I'm, I'm more surprised, though, that you wouldn't put Johnny Wilkinson in your greatest 15 ever. No, I'd have him behind Simon Culhane, actually. I like rated Simon Culhane. Justin Marshall played his first test with Simon Culhane at first 5'8". I do love a droppy, though. I love a drop goal. Yeah, no, under, look, it's an under, you know, I think do, yeah. it's an underrated tool. Johnny Wilkinson, the only thing Johnny Wilkinson didn't have is Johnny Wilkinson didn't have the running game that either Andrew Mertens had or that Carter had. I sort of put Johnny Wilkinson in that same mould as Grant Fox. Great, great yeah. players, but just didn't quite have that running game. See, Andrew Mertens is underrated. Andrew Mertens could run, man. Um, see, see, but it goes back, you know, I'm happy to have the debate that I think the greatest seven, number seven that's ever played the game is Michael Jones. I'm not saying that makes him a greater player than Richie McCaw because I think sometimes you define greatness, as you've alluded to, by longevity, captaining, and some perhaps some of the influence that you then have, which is intangible that you can't always measure on other players. Michael Jones changed the game. He changed the way the game was played. He is the best seven I have ever seen wear an all-black jersey. Athleticism like you would not believe. And it's been well documented and well reported that Richie McCaw wasn't particularly fast, he wasn't particularly athletic, but just had a big ticker, incredibly intelligent, knew where to be, you know? And so I'm happy to have that debate. Is, Rich, is Richie McCaw our greatest ever rugby player? Maybe. Is he our greatest ever seven? No, he's not. Uh, but it, the, once again, it all comes down to your, your interpretation of what the greatest is. I know it happens in no, basketball. No, no, Ben, I'm right, mate. <laughs> look at you, stuck your cold. No, no. What are you going to say? Sorry, I was only whining. Yep. No, I was going to say, but like you look at basketball, right? And that's always about the, the, the LeBron, Michael Jordan, and everyone always brings up the rings and how many times you lost in the finals and all these connotations of different variations and all that of what their definition of greatness is. You know, I guess it's a look, you look at league. Yeah, like, I look, it's always subjective, isn't it? It's always subjective, but I just think that, you, you, you know, yeah, it's subjective. It's completely subjective, and that's why we should always have the debate. But as I say, I just love to wind the Northern Hemisphere up. Uh, someone just saying, too, if you watch the Highlanders versus Rebel games, you would have switched to the NRL. Terrible game. Don't disagree. Awful game.
Highland has won it. But really, performance I, to be proud of. I saw the last kick of the game and I was happy that's all I saw. I, <laughs> I love the text we got yesterday. It was some halfway through the game on Saturday night. These people switched off and watched a documentary on steam trains. <laughs> I was watching Country <laughs> you Calendar. Sat down to watch, you sat down to watch rugby and you're not watching a documentary on steam trains because you're so damn bored. Brilliant. Anyway, let's talk some English Premier League football because Manchester City have wrapped up another English Premier League title and they've done it comfortably after it was Arsenal that sort of set the early standard or set the set the pace early on but just came undone at the wrong time of the year when Manchester City just started to come right. Andy Buckley, not only is an outstanding football correspondent but he's also a hardcore Manchester City fan. He joins us. Andy, congratulations. What? Thank you very much. What a wonderful day. Yeah, wonder win over Chelsea. Did they present the trophy at home or are you going to have to get it presented to you when Manchester City are playing away? No, no, all done and dusted uh, yesterday. Uh, and uh, it's quite an emotional moment even for me as a City fan because a close friend of mine whose autobiography I've just finished uh, presented the trophy. Uh, Alex Williams is his name. And he played for City in the 80s, first modern-day black goalkeeper in English football, suffered horrific abuse, racist abuse from the terraces in an era when uh, racism was uh, rife uh, in uh, society, certainly in, in, uh, on these shores. Uh, uh, it's still there now, uh, sadly, but uh, for the last 30-odd years, he's been uh, running Manchester City's community programme, which has achieved phenomenal success around Manchester, uh, and a, a kind of a beacon that other clubs have, have tried to emulate, and Alex has run it. Uh, and the City uh, is retiring in August, so City said, would you like to present the trophy to Ilkay Gundogan after the title? It was all hush-hush. He got asked last Monday, and he told me he sworn to secrecy because there's no guarantee City were going to win the title. So when Arsenal lost at Forest, um, City put a press release out to say uh, Alex Williams will present the trophy and I was there to see him walk onto the pitch, uh, sat not too far away from the man, Steve Fleet, who was a legendary goalkeeper for City called Bert Troutman in the 1950s, who, who famously um, broke his neck playing in the FA Cup final and was a German paratrooper in the Second World War. Uh, and the, the guy who sat near me, Steve Fleet, was understudy to Bert Troutman. Uh, for 10 years at City and Steve was Alex's coach when he was in the youth team so uh, it's safe to say there were a few tears shed uh, by Steve as he saw Alex present the trophy to Gundogan present all the medals to the players uh, and uh, it it just rounded off an absolutely special day as Manchester City reserves beat Chelsea When you go go through Manchester City reserves, there's still teams with Alvarez, Stones, Haaland, Mares, De Bruyne. I mean, you go through, it's unbelievable. Rodri, Foden, um, you know, still. And then you've got the likes of Grealish, etc. just sitting there. Where does this side rank? Is this the best ever Manchester City team? Is this the best ever team to have taken the field in the English Premier League, in an English Premier League season, in in an English League season? Good question, and uh, it's one that uh, over quite a few beers last night we were still uh, having this very same discussion. Hard to say. It's certainly, I mean, if you go on trophies, then uh, I think it, it, it's right that the team is right up there. And if they win the Champions League, if they win the FA Cup and, and, and win the treble, 
then yes. Uh, but others would say, well, hang on a minute, a team that had David Silva, that had Sergio Aguero, that had Yaya Sorry, that had Vincent Company, that had Fernandinho in it, weren't they special as well? And the answer to that is yes, they were. But City came up short in Europe under those players. Uh, now they're on the, the threshold of uh, that treble. And also, I think the, the fact that here we are, five wins out of the last six seasons becoming Premier League champions underlines that City's dominance, not just in Manchester, but in, in uh, English football, is supreme. Uh, but, but yeah, I think that... And I think one of the strengths is that they haven't got that many players, which might sound a bit weird, uh, but when they did the trophy presentation, there were only 17 or 18 who got the medals. Uh, there's a huge backroom staff of about 40-odd, which sort of three treble the size of the first team squad, or double... Um, but they haven't got that many players, but they're all pretty good. In fact, exceptional. So much so that um, when I jokingly said about City Reserves beating Chelsea uh, yesterday, he'd left 64 goals on the substitutes bench because he wanted to give the players like Calvin Phillips, um, who's hardly played, uh, give Cole Palmer, give him a game. Uh, and, and also count down towards the next two cup finals, which is, of, of course, the FA Cup and Champions League. So they've got 64 goals on the bench. Erling Haaland is on the bench. De Bruyne is on the bench. Grealish is on the bench. Bernardo Silva, Ilkay Gundogan, John Stones. 64 goals. 14 clubs in the English Premier League this season, which is about to end, didn't score 64 goals, including Manchester United, which just underlines the kind of power and relentlessness. Some might say, well, hang on a minute, is that good for English football that the City are dominated in such a way? And, and it's a good point. Um, and, uh, you know, it was a bit kind of, a bit blasé really yesterday because brilliant sunshine. For once, it was a nice sunny May day in Manchester. Fantastic atmosphere. City do it in such good style in terms of the, the pre-match, the post-match uh, presentation. Uh, the, the Premier League chief exec, Richard Masters, was there with Alex Williams on the platform as the trophy was, was awarded and he got roundly booed because, of course, City are facing these 115 Premier League charges uh, of uh, relating to accountancy uh, issues, which the club deny. And there will always be this kind of question mark over the ownership, etc., uh, etc. Et but City's net spend uh, over the last five years is, is a fraction of what other clubs, including Chelsea's today's opponents, have spent. So... Uh, all, all sorts of talking points, but uh, for a football fan of, of blue persuasion, yesterday was was quite extraordinary. Mm. What has what has been the reason for the turnaround in form of Jack Grealish, um, signed from Aston Villa for a huge amount of money, and struggled initially, struggled in those first seasons, and was almost labelled as a bit of a dud. But he's well and truly come into his own, particularly in the second half of this season. Yeah, uh, I, I just think he's, he's fitted into Guardiola's style of play. And this comes back to Guardiola, really, and, and his magic touch and the way that he can uh, get the best out of players. Um, De Bruyne was 26 when he joined City, uh, and he, you know, he was a kind of Chelsea reject. The City fans were chanting like yesterday, Chelsea rejects, sort of mockingly, as if to say, um, you know, we signed a guy that, um, that Chelsea discarded went to Wolfsburg in Germany and came back. And Jack Grealish has, has thrived under Guardiola's coaching. Manu Akanji, who can play anywhere across the back four, has been an absolute star this season. Cost £15 million. He was available. He was being touted around a lot of Europe's clubs uh, less than 12 months ago. And City picked him up for £15 million and said, 
we'll, guess what? I'll turn you it and Guardiola said, look, I'll give you, I'll coach you. They signed him. He's been a, he's been a revelation. Uh, and Grealish falls into that category. He, he's, he's prospered, uh, an immense talent, an immense fee, but he's prospered under uh, the guidance of, of a genius. Uh, that genius, again, another talking point, will he be there next season? Will Guardiola now walk away into the sunset and say, that's it, I can't beat that, I'm off. Uh, others are saying, well, they've won three in a row, do four in a row, no one's done that. Uh, but at some point he's going to draw, he's going to pull the curtains together and say, that's it, I'm finished at City. Uh, he's not going to stay forever. He's been there seven years already. Uh, so, he, he, you know, he might clear off in the summer. He could go. And a month from now, we could be having a conversation about Pep Guardiola and his legacy and who's going to replace him. All sorts of, uh, of, of, of issues come to light then. But uh, for the moment, we're just sort of kind of basking in the glory and just uh, enjoying it because we've known the dark days as City fans. And, and now is these are these are these are special special times. Erling Haaland, um, remarkable season, but you just get a feeling that City's not going to be his club for life. You just sort of feel a little bit like Cristiano Ronaldo at Manchester United that the Spanish clubs are waiting. What's the sort of general feeling consensus about his tenure yeah. at Manchester City? Certainly, will be there next season. Yeah, I don't think he'll be going anywhere soon, but I do share your view uh, and that commonly held view that it's not for life. Uh, they got a decade or more out of Aguero, and I think these days it's rare for players to spend so long there. But uh, you know what? It's all about finding the next Erling Haaland, the next Sergio Aguero. Um, and uh, I, I saw that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said that he, he, he recommended uh, Harland to United a few years ago for four million pounds. They could have had him, and they turned it down. So it's all about it's all about eyeing the next uh, big stars. That that's the secret to it. And then then not only buying them, but also turning them into into proven uh, winners. And I think that the mood in the, in the city camp, there's no kind of superstars really. There's no no there's not a Ronaldo. There isn't anybody like that. And Erling Haaland, you might say, well, he's the closest to it. He's the guy who gets the He's the guy with the most, uh, you know, shirts on that fans will buy replica shirts. But uh, I think he's kind of pretty well grounded in terms of this is the way that Pep runs the show, and uh, don't get too big for your boots, which Cancelo did, and he got frog marched off to Munich uh, in January on loan, and now Munich, surprise, surprise, don't want him. So you always think the grass is greener, can't you? You know, say, oh. I'll go to Real Madrid and it might not work out. I mean, I think Real Madrid will come again. I think that their era of Benzema and Modric is coming to an end. But they're an institution, Real Madrid, and they will uh, remodel their team. And, you know, it might be Jude Bellingham. It might be Erling Haaland in two or three years. But it's then up to City to try and find the next uh, the next Aguero and Haaland. And what I would say to that is that not only is it Guardiola, but it's the Spanish uh uh, contingent behind the scenes, the chief executive and the, the football director who, who've been there since the start of the, the uh, Abu Dhabi regime. Uh, but they'll go at some stage. So that's when people might think, well, these things go in cycle. It was Liverpool in the 80s, Manchester United in the 90s, Chelsea to a certain extent in the noughties, then came City last decade. It's not going to last forever. We know that. It's not, not here forever. Uh, life isn't like that. Uh, people change, times change, so why not just sort of uh, just just let it sink in and just sort of think, well, the sun's shining, 
and, mm. and life is uh, pretty sweet at the moment for a City fan. Andy Buckley, football commentator, is my guest on the programme. Andy, give us a bit of a feel about what's the feeling like around Manchester, the city itself, uh, always been Manchester City versus Man United. Man United have always been the club that's been able to gloat. Manchester City have always been the poor cousins. What, what's the... Is there a sense of jealousy? Is there um, a sense well, of anxiety? Uh, I mean, give us, give us a yeah, sort of describe yeah, well, United, describe the city and its flavour yeah. at the moment. Well, it's, it's it's nice to walk around with a blue and white scarf and uh, uh, wear it proudly. Uh, and uh, you, we've not always been able to say that. And I, I covered the Manchester United treble in 1999 when I was at the BBC. I was in Barcelona for a week. We did the whole programming from Barcelona for a week where they won the treble. Uh, they'd won the cup final against Newcastle a few days before. And then I came back. I was, Although I was sports editor, I was also the Manchester City reporter, commentator, so, uh, uh, as well as sort of running the whole production from Barcelona. I then came back and on the Sunday was at Gillingham against City in the uh, playoff second division final. City were trying to get out of the third tier. They were 2-0 down, going to stoppage time. Famously got back to two all, won on penalties. Uh, and um, and then that started the kind of climb up through the divisions, which is where which has led to where we are today. So, if you I mention that because that backdrop is important because City's support stayed loyal. So now these golden days uh, we're enjoying it while United have been floundering for the last decade or so. Uh, so when when Alex Ferguson turned around and said describe City as noisy neighbours more than ten years ago and said, not in my lifetime will Manchester City ever finish above United. Guess what? Uh, it, uh, we, we've seen it big style in terms of City's uh, uh, rubbing United's noses in it. And there was also a famous banner that the Stretford and the Old Trafford and United and Alex Ferguson signed this off, which if ever anybody accuses Manchester City of uh, gloating against United, I'd just say they had a banner and the, the, the banner changed and it went to 34 years and it's sort of like for the three and then it had half tick over to the four to the five and then they get changed. In other words, since Manchester City had won a trophy, those years represented since Manchester City last won a trophy, which was in 1976 until they won the trophy again in 2011 when they won the FA Cup in the Carlos Tevez era. And United, as a club, not just the fans, the club, they sanctioned that. So these... A days when City fans are just thinking, up yours, pal, because uh, you know you you kind of rubbed our noses in it. Now, as the subplot to that, uh, it's the FA Cup final. Guess what? A week on Saturday, and it's Manchester City against Manchester United. Mm. Two teams can stop City winning the treble: Inter Milan and Manchester United. Mm. United have a, a, for, for all those Reds around the world, of which there are many. I know Liverpool and United have got bigger fan bases than City, far bigger. Than, than any other club bar Real Madrid and Barcelona probably uh, th- those two teams can spike Pep Guardiola's moment of magic his finest hour he had his finest hour at the Etihad last week when we beat Real Madrid 4-0 and, and you know he, he's going to be uh, I, I was sat about 20 yards away from him yesterday uh, and he's patrolling the touchline and you're just thinking what's going through that man's mind uh, there he was um, j- just Stalking the touchline, fourth official getting it in the neck. You know the script, really, in terms of the way that managers are these days. But in fairness to him, you know he's given City uh, what is it, uh, five wins out of six last six seasons, winning the to- 
the title uh, and now we're on the, the brink of, of a glorious treble and uh, it's just um, magical. It's absolutely magical. The sad thing is for me, Mark, can I just mention this, I can't see the Champions League final. I will not even know the score because I'm going to, on Saturday, I'm going to Florida, I'm going to Disney World with my son, his wife, my two granddaughters, holiday of a lifetime. When we were in Alabama last year, my son booked it. He said, do you want to go into Disney World, uh, Dad, with the girls? Yeah, fantastic. So he booked it, and he's as sick as I am. And we're in the air, uh, coming back from Orlando to Manchester, whilst the game is in progress. There's no Wi-Fi on this plane. So I will have not have a clue what the Champions League final uh, is going to end up as. I'm going to get at Manchester Airport, and I'll see City fans wearily coming home. They'll either be smiling or sad. And I, I can't see it, and it, it's. But there are bigger things in life than a game of football, I suppose, and uh, you know, special moments on holiday. Yeah, Andy. Look, but on that, I mean, for the true for true greatness, they need to win that Champions League. If they don't, there's still that asterisk next to this this era, isn't there? There is. Yeah. No, I get that. I get that. Um, and if, if they lose those two big games that I mentioned, if they lose to United, and if they lose to Inter Milan then it, it will tarnish the season, really. I mean, City fans and Guardiola will say, you know, over 10 months, you win your league, then you are the best. And that is the priority, the, the Premier League. But you're dead right. The Champions League is, is the, the holy grail as far as City concerned. So to sweep the board and get all three uh, would be monumental. What also is monumental as well, and we've spoken about the World Cup and its impact on the season, is I remember covering City against... Liverpool in the Community Shield, I think we spoke around about that time, that was in July, mm. and City are going to finish their season now on June the 10th, it's going to be virtually a 12-month season, and City had more players at the World Cup than any other English team, just bear that in mind, more players, The good, and I was mentioning this over a beer last night to a few City pals, and they said, yeah, but what was good about it was that De Bruyne, Bernardo Silva, De Bruyne for Belgium, Bernardo Silva, Ruben Dias for per- Portugal, and, and Rodri for Spain, they got knocked out reasonably early. It was only the English that got to the semi-final. Um, and it meant that they had a little bit of two or three weeks of a kind of a mini break in the season. So it helped. And they've not all played all the games for City because he rotates the squad. So perversely, it's in what is arguably the toughest season because of its duration and its demands and the gruelling pressures of international club football. You know, and yet here we are. You know, we're staggering towards the finishing line, but majestically, Manchester City are marching on towards potential treble glory. You know, it, it, I find it fascinating. Maybe I'm a bit of a football sado, but I do, I do find that kind of uh, dynamic of it quite intriguing. Oh, we love your passion, Andy. That's why we get you on every week. Hey, look, uh, lovely to catch up, mate, and congratulations again as a Manchester City fan on what has been a remarkable season. Pleasure. Good to speak to you, Mark. All the best. 21 minutes after nine. You are listening to SENZ. Some football chat. Focus very much on Manchester City and deservedly so. You know, people can sit back and go, well, yeah, hang on a minute. They're basically funded by an entire country. Yeah, that's football. Uh, do FIFA need to step in and do something about it? Or do the FA need to step in and do something about it? Probably. Perhaps. Uh, English Premier League is, I think, the biggest sporting league in the world for the fact that there is a level of um, unpredictability about it 
it doesn't want to end up like the Scottish Premier League where you've just got Celtic and Rangers. It doesn't want to end up like the Spanish League where it's predominantly just Barcelona and Real Madrid. Um, and you can't just keep having an English budget and continuing to drive up the value, the market value of players because the club simply will not be able to afford it. Newcastle United, possibly the next team that we could end up seeing following in the footsteps of City. Incredibly well funded by the Saudis. They've done really well this year with a fairly average side. A Liverpool Football Club, I think are always going to be on a limited budget under the current ownership. Manchester United, they're up for sale. The Sheikhs or the Middle Eastern countries get their hands on it. And money's like water, then we could see the emergence again of Manchester United. But we've seen it before too, and we've seen it with Chelsea particularly. You've still got to have a Pep Guardiola. You've still got to have a Jurgen Klopp type manager. A team of champions doesn't always make a champion team. It's about player management. It's about talent identification. It's about getting the right fit of personalities and then being able to bring them together, everybody doing their job individually and therefore getting the job done collectively. You might want to talk some English Premier League. 0800 150 is the number. Um, if you've just joined the programme too, I went on another rant after eight uh, just on the poor state of rugby and the interview that Mark Robertson did on the station and delusion, the delusion uh, that New Zealand rugby are under if they think the game is somehow healthy, if they think Super Rugby is healthy. We had Justin Marshall on the programme yesterday and he said that, look, halfway through the Crusaders game, he switched off, he went and looked for some rugby league. He knew what the outcome was and he was bored. I've got to say I was the same. And I was watching it because I wanted to follow young Corey Callow play. Uh, and then we've got Levi Amua, who potentially is going to leave Moana Pacifica and go to the Crusaders. Now, I don't blame the Crusaders for doing it. I don't blame Levi Amua for leaving, but it's not right. It's just not right. You can't have that many good players in one team, and we can't just keep pillaging Moana Pacifica every time a good player emerges out of that team. There's no point having them in this competition if they are just simply a development tool for other Super Rugby sides. Something needs to be done. We've got four Super Rugby coaching jobs available and no one seems to want them. I mean, you add it all up and things aren't healthy. Uh, if you do want to come in, 0800 150 24 minutes after nine. I've got some more football audio too, which we will bring you shortly. That must be my cue. Telephone number is 0800 150, what is it, 150811, isn't it? Oh, anyway, I'm just having a mental block. 0800 is the number, in fact, if you do want to phone the programme. Um, we're going to bring you some audio, some English Premier League audio in one moment from Pep Guardiola after having won the fifth English Premier League title in the space of six seasons. We'll also then hear from Roberto Zerbi because Brighton have ended up making European Cup competition next year. They will play in the UEFA Cup, probably alongside of Liverpool. And we'll also hear from Sam Allardyce. So without further ado, let's continue celebrating the success of Man City, Manchester City as much as it hurts me as a Liverpool fan. Let's hear from Pep Guardiola, arguably the greatest football coach in the world at the moment. 
Yeah, I think I, I would like on behalf of all organization myself personally for the relation I have with Mikel. So, incredible big congratulations for uh, for Arsenal has done. So, I think Mikel bring the team again what Arsenal was in the past, since many many years being far away, have been a quite similar battle like like Liverpool in the previous in the previous seasons. So. They bring us again, Arsenal bring us again to our limits. Otherwise, if we don't make this run, the 12, 30, I don't know how much, 12, 12 games in a row winning, after making 50 points in the first leg would have been impossible to catch them. So they, they lost some points and we were there, we were there, we pushed them and at the end, uh, yeah, we will retain, retain our title. Uh, congratulations. This is your fifth Premier League title here as manager. You've always said the Premier League is the one you value the most, the one that gives you the most satisfaction. Does this one mean more given the difficulties you've had to overcome this season, obviously chasing Arsenal? And of course, we have to mention oh. the, the, the charges as well that the, the Premier League levelled at the club back in February. Does this make it even more sweet for you? No, no, I would say, I would say no. So we should, I don't know, I remember perfectly, but a lot of games in a row to beat Liverpool in the past. So have been, I would say, have been quite, quite similar. Maybe Liverpool arrive until the last last game, two or three times. But uh, the first leg from they 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 did 50, 50 points. So and I had the feeling that wow, we'll make something special. They have to drop points a little bit. Uh, will be so difficult. So they have played exceptional football uh, all season. But we were there, not even give up, and they felt that we were there, and that that makes our. But I would not say this is more important, more difficult than the previous one. I had, except the, the first Premier League, that we made 100 points at we start, and looks like, oh my God, what's going on? Every game, go, go, win, 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 and take a lot of advantage for the second. The last Premier League always have been so tight and so so difficult. So this is not more special than the other ones. Everyone, everyone, it is. So it's not just the fact today. The club told me no, it's the, the, the fifth. Primarily in six years, but we have six and ten, seven and twelve. So that means a little bit more than a decade. So when you are a star now, you know, and, and said, okay, we start a primarily right now in the next twelve years, or even in the next six years, we're going to win five. I cannot imagine. So this is what we have done. So imagine right now, we start next season, the first next season, we one team, we're going to win five primaries. I cannot imagine, not even ourselves. So that's why the. I don't need for I did for did Millerstone. I don't need. We don't need. I think one decade or two decades or three decades to think about how good it was. I think we had the feeling we had done something exceptional in terms of Premier League. Of course, to be considered one of the greatest teams, we have to win Europe. We have to win the Champions League. Otherwise, yeah, maybe people say yeah, it was not complete our our yeah our time here. But in the same time, if just in case we are not able to do it in number 10th against Inter or next season, we cannot do it. Always is unfair to say that uh, what we have done with five primaries in the last six years or or seven and 12, that that is something extraordinary. Everybody knows it. I think in the world football, all the managers in the Premier League, all the players, sport directors, clubs, boards and whatever, they know how exceptional it is. Yeah, they do have to win... Champions League though.
they do need to beat Inter Milan if they want to be considered one of the great clubs and if they want this team to go down in history as might just be the greatest side or squad in the history of the English Premier League. To beat great teams, you've generally got to evolve and get better yourself, don't you? Great Liverpool sides, great Manchester United sides, but boy, how good has this Manchester City been under Pep Guardiola? Let's now bring you an interview from Roberto Zerbi because they ended up beating Southampton by three goals to one, meaning they will finish sixth, no worse than sixth in the table. They can't get into the top four, which means they now qualify for the UEFA Champions League, which is the second tier of European football, but still incredibly important for a club who just don't have a history in playing in Europe. Uh, we are very happy. We are uh, mm, uh, elated for the, the result. <clears throat> the credit is uh, the club, the, the people who work inside of the, the club. Um, the, the credit is uh, of the players because they have been fantastic uh, uh, like a player, like a, a people inside the dressing room. Uh, for me, it's an honour um, to be their coach, uh, to work in this club. And it's a big, big emotion. And a word for the players and what you've experienced with them this season, the way you've developed some of them, got them to play football in your style. How have they found that and how have you made that possible? I've been myself. Uh, I... Uh, in the first moment, uh, I I worked to to understand the the characteristic of my players, to understand the the new competition, the new league, the new country, you no. Know? And then step by step, day by day, I I started to to put my my idea. But uh, the players uh, the players were fantastic. Uh, they follow me in, with. Uh, with passion, with uh, energy, with uh, uh, enthusiasm, and now it's not finished yet. But because uh, we need uh, one point more to play in Europe League, because we have the possibility to to play in Europe League. Conference League is a very important competition. But if we if we can play one competition more important, we have to to do it. We have to achieve it. And your thoughts on the game today and how that developed and the way that your side were so expressive in going forwards with the ball? Well, you know, uh, we are enduring a very, I think, not tough, uh, but uh, impossible period. We are playing uh, every three days, uh, three games uh, per week. Uh, we, we have played... 14 player 14 games uh, from April to to now uh, incredible uh, period and uh, we are fighting <laughs> with our energy with our style uh, keeping our style keeping our DNA is not um, is not easy 
but it's not finished. We we have to 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 make another point. Must be hard for Roberto Zerbi because I thought I heard a translator there in the background. But being able to, when your English is your second language and you're dealing with a club that is English, uh, you know, to be able to get your messages across and making sure that, you know, it's not lost in translation. I wonder how much the translator gets paid. Well, I wonder if they'd get paid the same amount as the, the former, the former now, the throwing coach Liverpool had for a while. Did you not know about that? Well, yeah, sorry. The Liverpool had a throw-in coach. And, oh, right, okay. And, yep. and they felt that it was very beneficial for them for a few seasons, but they have now parted ways. Oh, I didn't realise that, no. So you know, some of some of these these roles are very important, but what, has to, what Brighton has been able to do, I think would probably have to be one of the – I know there's the whole fairy tale Hollywood story of Wrexham and the lower legs, but I think what Brighton have done is probably like the best story in English football this season <laughs> – uh, even when, I know going back to last season, I think they were top of the table after a few games and they kind of fell away. But the fact that they've, you know, what they've gone through, the players they lost last season, of course, Potter going to Chelsea, getting a new manager, and there's they're probably going to lose three to four of some of these guys anyway who are going to be picked up by other clubs like McAllister Liverpool, or, or but yeah. done to Liverpool. So I think that what has been able to be done at Brighton considering they've never been at this level before first time qualifying, I think it's a remarkable story and probably the story of the season. Yeah, I think the other one, I, I, I do think you've got to put Newcastle in there too. Um, admittedly, they're well backed, but they still don't have that squad that's been bought just yet. And I think Eddie Howe, has done remarkable things with them, but you're bright and you're right. I mean, there is an expectation with Newcastle. They are a big club. Um, they're probably underperformed. And sometimes when you underperform and then you actually just fulfil your potential, it is heightened because of your own previous deficiencies. So you sort of almost benefit well, you, because you have been so bad, if that makes sense. Well, you look at the, like the depth of a club like Brighton. Today they had a young striker from uh, Ireland starting up front, and Evan Ferguson. He's just eighteen years old, mm. and and they've and so their depth is is not as good as some of these other teams. And I I agree. I think what Newcastle have has, has done has been incredible. But I think probably the way that Eddie Howe finished with them last season, you probably expected them to be competing, maybe not reaching a Champions League well, spot this year. But Maybe the story is then, you know, you talk about Pep Guardiola as being the best manager in the league. I think Jurgen Klopp's there. But where is Eddie Howe in that conversation? Because, you know, he took Bournemouth from basically, they were, if you go back through the history of Bournemouth, they were like, five minutes away at one point of being out of league football completely and then he took them into the Premier League and did some great things and then clearly you know you need that probably change in voice and then he's come in and taken on the Newcastle job and boy they were relocated only a couple of seasons back you know they were having to pay their way back into the Premiership and he has really turned their fortunes around and when he did come in they were a club that was they were a club that was in real trouble so you know where does Eddie House sit in the conversation of great managers at the moment? Maybe he doesn't have the romance of Europe or the Spanish or the German or whatever accent that you seem to almost seem to have now to bring credibility. Well, he, look, he, he is he is going to be up there, uh, even when he took Bournemouth to the Premier League, and uh, I know they're back up this season, but they went down for a season or two. But even what he was doing with. Bournemouth there, and there were a few guys uh, he's got now at, at Newcastle, Callum Wilson, uh, who, who were playing for Bournemouth under Eddie Howe. So I, I think he's got a bit of a proven track record. But you know the key to their success? Who, Newcastle or Bournemouth? Newcastle. 
What's that? Signing of Chris Wood. The day they signed Chris Wood, who's now on loan to Nottingham Forest, they started winning. There's talk that he, the Forest might make that deal permanent now that they've sucking around in the Premier League next season. Yeah, uh, look, I think if you're Chris Wood, you just want some game time, don't you? Um, it's hard when you're playing on the bench and coming off the bench and you're not getting regular game time. Sh- scoring goals, I think, is a habit. And you've got to be in the contest uh, um, to be able to clearly for that to happen. 